Hello, it's Jack Tutor here of Attention Magazine. Welcome to Crucial Listening, the podcast where I speak with musicians and sound artists about three albums that are important to them. My guest this time is Sarah Feldman, usually based in Montreal, currently in Vancouver. Sarah runs the Sounds Good channel on YouTube, which is a music education channel, features videos on acoustic concepts such as sound waves, music concepts such as notation, and also has biographies on various composers such as Julius Eastman, Daphne Oram, Wendy Carlos. And Sarah's videos are excellent. They're so precisely delivered, so coherent and immediately ingestible. But also, these videos are starting to accrue a means of thinking about musical education that doesn't adhere so ruthlessly to this very white, very male means of canonizing music that we currently have among particularly Western music education institutions. It's kind of a way of saying, what if we constructed music education in a way that made more people feel like they could take part? It's a really cool channel. If you go to youtube.com slash soundsgoodchannel, you find it there. But I first came into Sarah's work through her compositions, her music compositions. I did an interview with her on attention, I think back in 2017. And some of the music we talked about then finally came out on her EP grids last year which is amazing you've got all of these individual elements that feel like they're on their own jag but together they create the impression of a system that's trying to find alignment with itself it's so compelling i definitely recommend checking that out at sarahfeldman.bandcamp.com and it was really wonderful to hear sarah's voice finally having been in touch with her all those years ago and we had a excellent conversation i think you'll really enjoy this one i certainly did so head over to attentionmagazine.co.uk forward slash crucial listening for more information on sarah's picks and links to her own projects and thank you as always for listening for rating for reviewing for saying very nice things about the podcast hope you enjoy this conversation this is sarah feldman on crucial listening Sarah, welcome to Crucial Listening. Hi, thank you so much for having me. Thanks for coming on. So we're going to talk about three important records. And before we do, I want to start by talking about a few things that you've got on yourself at the moment and recently. So let's start by talking about the YouTube channel. Sounds good, which great seems like you've been working on for a few months now. So maybe we can give people a little introduction to what it is. So what is Sounds sure. Good? Yeah, so basically it's a, a music education channel that is sort of focused around experimental music, but not uh, not too strictly. Um, and the basic uh, sort of inspiration or idea behind it is that um, I want it to be a more sort of updated and socially conscious approach to music education. Um, I've had a lot of different experiences in various forms of institutional music education throughout my life and uh, in some ways my channel is a response to the various ways that uh, those experiences have not felt good uh -huh. um, and so one of the ways that I do that is by covering artists who uh, are, have made significant contributions to the world of music but um, are not as widely recognized as I think they should be um, in, in based on their identity. So mm -hmm. um, a lot of women, uh, POC, queer people, and just generally try to have a, uh, a welcoming um, vibe 
to the channel. As you mentioned, you do features on composers. So, so far as we're talking, you've done Julius Eastman, Daphne Oram, and Wendy Carlos. Um, That's right. Maybe you could give me a little kind of rundown of why you wanted to choose each of these particular composers in terms of you know what they mean to you personally perhaps right um that's a really good question i mean i think that you know to be honest it's it's not been the most intentional process um i just sort of have like a list of people who have been interesting to me who have sort of caught my attention and just sort of followed followed my inspiration. Um, I was particularly excited to talk about Wendy Carlos because I'm uh, also a trans woman, and she's a very um, a very important uh, figure for me personally mm. and uh, for the for the trans community. I think so. Um, that was a particular reason to talk about her. But otherwise, it's just sort of been like, oh wow, this you know, this person's really amazing, and there's maybe not. As much information out there as I, I think there should be so um, I just have like a huge list uh, on my computer and I just kind of <laughs> I'm like I think it's gonna be this one this time <laughs> <laughs> and we were talking a little bit before we started recording it sounds like the research portion of putting these videos together is pretty in-depth I mean what does that look like how long it does is. it take you to put together a, a video and how do you dive into all this material yeah, um, it it takes about uh, a little bit. Well, it takes about two weeks of of like full time hours, basically. Cool. Wow. Um, yeah, it's a. Uh, it's yeah. So I, I kind of it's actually quite similar to how you would write like a feature length article um, about somebody. Mm-hmm. I think like I spend the first couple of days mostly just reading, um, and I just kind of try to cut a really wide swath at first um, and then if I see you know something usually there'll be a couple of really good sources that I I dive into and then uh, just kind of start taking notes and then I start writing I kind of look for you know I look for a narrative to sort of um, fit it all into and then writing usually takes about seven days five to seven days depending um, Lots of lots of revision, lots of reading out loud, uh-huh. uh, recording myself uh, saying it. I've started to try and record myself saying it, and then listen to the recording so I can get better at memorizing the scripts. Oh, nice! And then the last the last little section is just the is the production and editing, and that's that's get, that's getting a lot faster, which is really <laughs> nice. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. It's um. I know with the podcast, it's crazy when you add up how long it takes to do each one. You're like, that's a lot of life right there. Um, it really is. Yeah, I find it. I mean, I love doing it. Uh, uh-huh. It's it's like it's it's such a cool it's such a cool job. I mean, I'm living off of uh, the the Canadian government um, like subsidy right now. So uh, it's things will change once that that money runs out and I have to get a full time job. But I'm hoping eventually that the channel will be able to support itself but in the meantime mm. uh, I will have to reformulate my my life but right now it's really fun to be able to just be like yeah my full-time job is to read about things that are really interesting to me <laughs> it's a pretty sweet deal isn't it yeah wow that's awesome yeah. um, one aspect of the videos I really like actually is the way that you include quotes from like read by mm. various guests uh, mm-hmm. whenever you have it. Mm-hmm. It's, it's, it's a really nice feature aesthetically. Thank you. Um, what inspired you to do that? Yeah, I feel like that's a really important thing to me. I mean, I feel like especially, you know, like covering people who have, uh, you know, oppressed identities is a complicated uh, endeavor. Mm. And I think that, um, again, sort of drawing on my own personal experience, I think... Um, you know, trying to give the person themselves as much of a voice as it's possible to do in that kind of context, mm. um, I think is really important um, because uh, it can be really easy for people to just project all kinds of stuff onto onto these people, and uh, sometimes that can be not mean very much, but sometimes it can be harmful. Uh-huh. Um, and I think it's just. I think it's just very important to me to respect these people and their 
their lives and their legacies. And I, I feel like that's just a way for me to be like, okay, this is this is this person speaking to you speaking to you directly, even though, you know, I understand that I'm creating a narrative and that's my own idea of of the interpretation of this person in their career and their life. But it's very important for me to to let the person themselves speak. And it's a fun way to also just formally to break up the 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 sort of texture of the videos. And, Right. And get other people involved, a different voice. Uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And if people want to check out the YouTube channel, where's the best place for them to, to do that? Uh, so you can just go to youtube.com slash sounds good channel and uh, you'll be taken right there. And I also have Instagram and, and Twitter and all the other things. So you can and you can find that on the channel if you're interested in in following me there. Nice. And there's a Patreon as well. Yeah. That's right. Yeah, um, Patreon.com/slash/SoundsGoodChannel, uh, and you can get some sort of some bonus stuff there, some behind-the-scenes content. Uh, get your name in the credits, uh, early access to the videos, kind of the standard, the standard YouTube <laughs> Patreon goodies. Nice, great. Yeah, and I want to touch as well on an EP that you released last year. You make music yourself, Sarah. The EP was Grids, and I heard. A couple of pieces from Grids back when we spoke last in what was it, 2017? Um, yeah. And now it's come back in the form of this release of four tracks. It's wonderful to hear these pieces find a new context. And one thing that I've really found curious is the fact that you titled this release Grids. It feels quite a potent aspect of how I'm listening to the work. I mean, suggesting okay. something that has a structure that is kind of aware of whether or not it's adhering to it or not or uh, I've got my own thoughts on it but I thought it'd be much more right. interesting to ask the person who <laughs> made the thing what well, what was it about the title that felt appropriate for this release well um I mean I'd be curious to hear your your interpretation of it as well of course but um <laughs> I think that I mean the the sort of underlying idea is that um, sort of trying to explore the tension between sort of just trying to control things in your life and um, the the way that life itself really resists control hmm. um, and so I guess like the idea of the the grids that are sort of overlapping in ways that sort of uh, escape each other because they go they're at different speeds so they don't they don't all overlap um, mm. in a in a consistent way the idea is sort of to try and express this feeling of sort of like trying to trying to capture a feeling of control and then having it escape um, and sort of the broader picture of this happening over the course of an entire piece or on multiple different levels at the same time is sort of maybe a look at um, maybe a more accepting look at uh, at being like, yeah, this is like a tension that as much as, you know, you might try and control it and, and try and have a healthy relationship to it. Um, and, you know, I will continue to work on that for the rest of my life. Uh -huh. um, it's also just like, it's, you can just sort of see it playing out in this way and you're just like, okay, this is, this is also in an extent I guess this is how it is, or there's like a sort of, I think, an acceptance that I'm also trying to express uh -huh. to the broader picture. Awesome. It's great. I really implore people to check that EP out. It's so good. It's Thank you. SarahFeldman.Bandcamp.com, is that right? That's right. Yeah. Awesome. Finally, as well, I want to touch on a new release that you've got in the works with mm -hmm. your band Watering. So uh, as you've mentioned, it's been a while since you have put anything down and released anything as a band so i'm curious how is everything taking shape at the moment um so i i work with um my sort of working partner of many many years uh bennett and then we usually sort of have other people that come in and help us out or we've had different sort of groups uh over the years um and right now we're in different cities so at this point we're just sort of assembling uh, material. Our, our sort of style is a hybrid between 
um, electronic music and sort of live electronic or electric instruments or acoustic instruments. And so um, right now we're just sort of trying to get the, the, the melody, harmony, rhythm structure and then I'll head out to Montreal in the summer and we will work together and sort of produce the, the songs. So sort of almost taking a more uh, pop production like approach with that stuff. Fantastic. Where can people check out? Is your previous release out there online as well? Yeah, um, watering.bandcamp.com is where you can see uh, our last release, which is, I think, from 2014 or 2015. Super. Great. Yeah. Well, we've got three important records to talk about as well, Sarah. And one question I like to ask before we get stuck into the records themselves is how you mm -hmm. thought about the term important when picking this list of albums. So was there a particular way in which you understood that term to come up with the records that you did? Yeah, um, that's a good question. I think, like... There's so many, you know, it's like, it's, there's so many to, to choose. <laughs> and uh, I, I tried to resist, um, you know, picking things that I thought would be maybe like interesting or, or unique. Like I think my, my choices are pretty uh, well known by a lot of people. Uh -huh. um, I think I just tried to choose things that really had like an emotional impact on me, like something that I really records that I really, really felt um, and have had sort of like a lasting, like I think records that I've like assimilated into my identity, I would say would be the, <laughs> that would be the way I would talk about it. Yeah. Nice. Okay, cool. Well, I'll let you pick whichever one you want to talk about first. So if you give me the name of it and then a bit about why it's important to you as well. Sure. Um, well, let's start with, uh, I mean, I was just, as I was saying, like having an emotional impact on me, it's funny that my, I'll, that the first one I'll, I'll, we'll talk about is Contacta by mm. uh, Karl Heinz Stockhausen, which is a deeply unemotional piece of music or <laughs> <laughs> maybe not unemotional actually, but, but definitely uh, anti-emotional or resistant right. to emotional interpretations. Um, so that was written in, I think, I'm going to say 62, that's a, that's a guess, but uh, it was one of the early, one of the early electronic pieces, um, it was made in like an institutional studio with like sine wave generators and basic filters and, and stuff like that, and um, made in the serialist, uh, modernist style, so um, its priorities are very much uh, formal ones. Um, mm. but I, I do feel like there is a, a, a pretty compelling emotional or symbolic interpretation to make about it too. Uh, I mean, modernism, uh, my interpretation of modernism is that it was very much a response to the second world war and the sort of horrors, um, that were happening in, in Europe and Stockhausen is, uh, German. Mm -hmm. And I, I hope that I'm not, uh, getting the biographical information wrong but i i'm pretty sure that both of his parents both of his parents died in the war and i think his mom might have been killed by the nazis but i'm not both of his parents died in the war so he had like a very tragic childhood mm. and uh um although the the sort of purported aesthetics of modernism are very much like a you know, this is about the, the form and this is about finding new formal rules for music and, and rejecting uh, tonality and the, the sort of language of the European classical tradition of the, of the you know, centuries past. Um, I think it's a, very, it's a very harsh and intense music. Um, uh -huh. And I think... You know, when you put those two things side by side, like it's a response to the Second World War and, and you know, these, the trauma that all of these people, like not just Stockhausen, but all these people lived through mm -hmm. during that time, um, it's, it's uh, you know, it feels like there has to be a lot of cognitive dissonance involved to be able to, to, to say that, oh, no, it's just a purely right. formal, uh, you know, music. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Can you tell me about ear training to this piece? 
piece of oh, music. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Have we talked about this before? This came up or in the interview, and I read it back recently. Right. I was like, holy right. shit. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, so I studied electroacoustics at Concordia University in Montreal. And... Um, what in our in the sort of sort of like one main class in the first year where 80 percent of your work is in the one main class it's kind of a weird setup that way but um for two weeks we just um we basically just listened to a 12 second excerpt of contact over and over and over and over and over again and um it sounds it sounds crazy, but it really was um, one of the most valuable ear training lessons that I've done. Like, it's really hard to communicate just how incredibly detailed contact it is. Like, all of the every sound um, is made with several other sounds that comprise it. So. Uh, rather than just like synthesizing a, a single sound, it's like every sound is like a compound sound mm. um, that are placed together. Um, so, like every little instant, every little event has all this internal detail within it. And then just all of the different time relationships and uh, everything else, like, you know, to go beyond, like that, that level of detail is, is just as dense on that sort of micro level that mm. I was talking about at the beginning, but then also it just sort of fans out uh, and it is sort of equally as detailed and sort of uh, thoughtfully put together as uh, uh, on, on every level, on the, on the for, like on the full form, 40 minute piece, uh-huh. And on every, you know, with every little section, it's kind of just like this. I mean, it, it, I feel like it's just a, it's a real human accomplishment. Like it's this kind of just incredible object almost. Like it's hard to, that's one way to look at it is like this, just like the most, the most detailed object that you can imagine <laughs> in this way. <laughs> yeah. So yeah, my, my, um, my mind was pretty blown by those two weeks, <laughs> even though I think I feel like I could probably kind of sing back the <laughs> the parts to you now, several years later, because it's like burned into my soul. Oh wow! But, um, yeah, and we listened to it. Also, the you know one thing um, for anyone listening interested in listening to it or who has heard it already um, in class, we listened to the four channel version. Um, I was going to ask, and yeah. That's uh, like the the two the the bounce down to stereo is an incredible amount of detail that's lost. So I think sometimes people really scratch their heads when I say these things about the piece because they're just sort of like, wow, it kind of just sounds like beep boops to me. And um, <laughs> <laughs> it is it's definitely beep boops, but um, but very good beep boops. Right. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> And uh, and yeah, unfortunately, the the four channel version is very difficult to find, um, mm. and also most people don't have four speakers right. to yes, listen exactly. to. So that's uh, I mean that's another thing about the piece really is that it is uh, you know made in an institution, best understood or best heard, best appreciated in an institution, and uh, I think that's a that's another interesting criticism to make about it I guess is that or it's something to be aware of I think when when, when mm. praising the piece it's like yeah this is definitely not somebody who had accessibility or uh, communicating with uh, any anyone beyond uh, an extremely specialized audience in mind absolutely um, but for that audience it's it's just pretty special so do you still listen to this piece now like I can imagine a you know a scenario where you go through that ear training exercise and you go, great, fantastic. I never want to touch that piece ever again. <laughs> but does well, it still come up? <laughs> I mean, one one crucial detail <laughs> with that is that uh, we only listened to about 12 seconds of the piece. So, <laughs> oh, see, so, so, so the, in the, the class, remaining like 42 actually... minutes Whoa. Are, are just are to- totally untarnished for me. <laughs> <laughs> That is insane. So you must listen back to this whole piece then, and that 12 seconds must really come into some kind of hyper-focus at that point. Absolutely. Wow. It's really quite... It's a fascinating um, 
experiment in in perception and memory, the way that the memory impacts our perception of of music. And I'm definitely of the opinion that that uh, memory is pretty central to how like our how we perceive music. Mm. Um, and yeah. I feel like it's a pretty great example of that, where all of this, like it's just yeah, it can go from this kind of blurry image to this, you know, almost like three-dimensional space that you feel like you could walk around and look at all the different angles of and and almost touch in this way, you know, and then it can just go back to this like blurry blurry dot, but you know that it's all, you know, that detail's in there the whole way through, so yeah. Yeah, yeah. Well, that's the, I guess that must be the really enthralling thing about it is that it could well have been a, an entirely different 12 seconds that was brought into that kind of lucidity for you absolutely huh. yeah and also as well and you mentioned the fact that it was a four channel piece or it was intended uh, intended as a four channel piece and you heard it as such i know you've presented your own work in four channel as well i mean does, yeah does does this piece factor in at all to how you contemplated what was possible in four channel or, or how you went about doing it yourself yeah, I think to an extent. I mean, for me, the the goal of the four channels. So because the the work that I have been doing and will continue to do um, involves multiple like events happening at multiple speeds, hmm. it's difficult to stream them or to segregate which um, event is coming from which uh, sort of musical voice. Mm -hmm. And so, for, from a formal perspective, my my main reason for using multiple channels is just like you put stuff in a different location it's a lot easier to be like okay yeah that that sound is coming from that particular musical voice and then right. you can sort of understand the relationships much more easily although i will say that you know the the sort of accessibility question um is definitely you know always been on my mind with four channel presentations and sort of been like this tension, ongoing tension uh, about performing my work or presenting it, sorry, but the one, the way that I've tried to approach that is, you know, by not, by doing multi-channel uh, listening setups in non-institutional settings. So like, mm. you know, renting a, a relatively small room and, you know, only, you know, like I've never had an event bigger than maybe 70 or 100 people. Um, so it's still not, you know, it's it's definitely not like going to a concert, but it's you know in a in a artist run center or a show space or something that's pretty informal and not having fancy speakers, but just having like, you know, regular um, PA monitors or whatever, and trying to create, you know, just have people sit on the floor and try to try to sort of that's that's one way that I've sort of tried to deal with this this issue is by trying to make it um, more more fun and more welcoming to people who maybe don't feel comfortable in an institutional environment. And I think it just makes the whole experience a lot more fun. Yeah. Um, yeah. But to cycle back to contact it, I mean, I think definitely like, um, you know, those experiences that I've had of listening to music in multiple channels have been uh, obviously very formative for me. And I think, I think it's kind of like, I do kind of think it's a shame that it's not more easily available, those t types of experiences, because I think, you know, I think maybe this association with like, you know, these institutional contexts or sort of like audiophile, like surround sound, home theater kind of thing, and people might kind of, you know, like people might not think that's very exciting. You know, I can understand why. Um, by a lot of people might be sort of turned off by that or whatever but mm. i think it is really special it is really cool to be in those kinds of more immersive um listening environments and yeah yeah contact is definitely a part of me feeling that way you know and is there other music by stockhausen as well that you really connect with um Not, not in the same way. Definitely. I mean, I've, I haven't really listened to him, his work too much in the last several years. But I, I have, I've listened to most of his, his work. Um, hmm. 
And I mean, the the first electronic piece, I, f- I feel like I'm going to mispronounce this, but Yesang de Younglinge, or maybe it's a hard G, anyways. Uh, that the So the one piece that sort of preceded Contacta, I, I really, really, it's very, very beautiful, um, uses uh, samples of like a, a boys' choir, which again just feels like I'm just like, oh man, like there's this such an interesting, I mean, just the denial of you know, uh, right. of the sort of emotional contact, uh, context or underpinning of this, of this work is just kind of dizzying almost, right? But um, right. Uh, that is, it's a very poignant and, and, and beautiful piece and more, um, less, less heady as Contacta and, and also was made in two channels. So maybe if you're interested in checking out uh, some Stockhausen after, after the podcast, that would be a good place to start. Great. Well, let's go on to your second record now then, Sarah, if you again, give me the name of it and then a bit about why it's important to you as well. Sure. So um, another one that I chose was um, Blonde by Frank Ocean. And I, I mean, I feel like it's like Frank Ocean does melancholy better than almost anyone <laughs> yeah. that I can think of. <laughs> and... Um, it's really that it's really one of the main albums that inspired me to write pop music and that's sort of like what that's what I'm doing with watering now like we're going in this in much more of like a um, you know melodies first direction in terms of our inspiration and also in our process mm. um, whereas our earlier works was definitely a more sort of timbre first and sound design first and and sort of like you know it's more about the sounds but yeah like just the way that I connected to that album really made me be like, mm, you know, sounds are, you know, timbres are great and they're very interesting. It's a very interesting way of sort of get like exploring new experiences of sound and music, I think, especially with synthesizers and stuff. Mm-hmm. But um, I think in the last couple of years, I've really been like, you know, conventions are wonderful and <laughs> Like there's nothing, there's no experimental music. There's no unconventional music that can make me feel the way that Blonde does. Uh huh. And you know, so as much as as much as doing things that are unconventional or coming up with something new, quote unquote, can make can make one feel pretty special. <laughs> um, <laughs> I I'm I'm very much of the opinion that um, that making pop music is also very special. Mm-hmm. What is it about Frank Ocean's brand of pop music and specifically on Blonde because this is so much its own thing compared to Mm. the record that came prior, right? I mean, what is it about Mm -hmm. Frank Ocean's take on pop that you think may have really hit you? Oh man, that's such a good question. (laughs) It's a big question, isn't it? (laughs) Yeah, it is. Um, I think, I mean, I think it's like... I I I don't really know. I think it's very um it's very relatable and yeah, I don't know I don't I don't know if I have a great answer for you for this one to be yes, honest. I fair. I think it's just sort of like I can I can picture the things that he sings about happening. Yes. Um and I can feel them. Um and yeah, I think I, I think I'd, I have to think about that a little bit more, to be honest. Yeah. Yeah. No, I, I probably should have warned you. Um, I mean, <laughs> do you have a, a a favorite track on the record? Um, no, not really. No, I really like I really like the whole thing. There's probably like four or five. I'm not going to remember the names, but there's probably like four or five mm. of my favorites. I I'm much more of an album listener, so I just listen to basically listen to the whole thing. 
over and over and over and over and over again. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. No, I mean, yeah. this is a record that seems to really encourage that, right? It's, um, mm. in fact, the boundaries between the tracks are pretty blurry sometimes. It's difficult Indeed. to, you know, work out when one ends and one begins. Um, yeah. It's, it's interesting you mentioned this in the in the context of pop as well, I guess, because I think it sounds like a lot of people who came into Frank's work through something like Channel Orange maybe found the mm -hmm. pop element quite evasive on Blonde. Mm. Um, you know, maybe if maybe coming from right. a perspective of having done ear training for Stockhausen, it perhaps <laughs> wasn't quite as elusive. But um, I mean, do you, indeed, do you feel like that there's point. a push pull? going on about I, I mean so so the way that i kind of see it is that uh, you know obviously so many so much of the lyrical content on this record i can't profess to understand precisely where he's coming from mm. but obviously there's a lot about alienation a lot about mm -hmm. feeling you know he even says directly at one point i can't relate to my peers um right and there's a sense of opening up but then also curling up as well at the same time that i feel with yeah. this i don't know whether that's yeah. something that comes through for you as well Absolutely. Yeah, I think um, definitely. And those are definitely things that, um, you know, especially just given my life experience and my identity and the way that I've, um, you know, I think, yeah, it's funny that you mentioned that because I think um, like it was another trans girl who showed me this, the record in the first place and uh, definitely feel like a sort of sense of community around um listening like other trans women talking about it and, and really really loving it and i think that there's probably no coincidence that right. um that alienation you know as much as much as it's it's definitely very possible for us to find uh very loving and supportive communities now um in a way that is very new uh i think you know there's just there's really no way that you go through uh, a childhood like a, like a trans childhood. Um, maybe that's becoming less and less true, you know, because kids are now really being much more free to just be themselves. But right. yeah, I think I can't relate to my peers feels like, you know, in lots of ways I feel like I can, but then also in lots of ways, in, in deeper ways, I feel like I really, really can't. And uh, And yeah, I think it's... It's cathartic to have somebody sort of say that back to you, you know? Mm. Yeah, yeah, sure. Um, I mean, that track in particular is pretty amazing. Um, yeah. Cause on that one as well, I, I suppose, with Frank as well being a black gay man, um, mm -hmm. that line comes from a perspective, I guess, of not feeling like he lives, has the same lived experience as those people, but then... Also, he seems to be talking about, I guess, his experience of fame, feeling very at odds with him personally, too. Um, right, right. Which is, fuck. I mean, what I love about the podcast is that you've picked this, and I loved this record before, but knowing it's someone's important record really gives it a boot up the arse in terms of mm. how I connect with it as well. Um, right, cool. How, how often do you listen to this record? I mean, is it one that still comes up for you? Yeah, I would say so. Um, I feel like in like last year, I probably listened to it, you know, 150 times or something, <laughs> like just all the time. And so I feel like I haven't, I haven't been listening to it as much because I just really dove in. And mm. that's definitely more my listening style. Like I kind of just, I mostly just listen to my recently added things to my um, music app. Hmm. Um, and then every once in a while I'm like, oh, right. I, right. I listened to this album like a hundred times. I should go listen to it again. <laughs> yeah. But yeah, I think I'll always, always listen to, to Blonde with somewhat regularity. And are there any particular listening experiences that jut out in your mind that you've had hmm. with this record? I mean, I feel like... Um, Listening to it on a plane is very like. I mean, how much more like how much more like melancholy and like self-reflective can you possibly get? Really, uh, I remember hearing. I feel like I heard recently that there's actually like a scientific explanation for like there's a physiological explanation for why, um, why people feel more 
uh, nostalgic or self-reflective or melancholy on planes. Yes. Um, but in addition to that, I mean, I think, you know, living... So, like, I grew up in the, in the, in the prairies, in, in the Canadian prairies in, like, a small city. And, um, you know, sort of going back, like, my experience of flying has been going between Montreal and my hometown of Saskatoon. And I think, you know, so it's always at this moment of, you know, going back to see family or then, you know, going back back to see other family in Montreal, basically, or chosen family in Montreal. Um, you know, these moments where you are sort of taking stock of what has happened in the last year or six months or something. Mm. And, um, yeah, all those things together, definitely, I feel like I've, yeah, had some, I think, it feels like maybe multiple ones, but maybe it's just that one time was just, like, so, uh, so powerful that <laughs> uh, it feels like multiple times. Um <laughs> Yeah, like all those things together really can really make you feel, you know, all the things, all the things. <laughs> all of them. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, and as well, it's interesting you bring up pop music kind of generally, because mm-hmm. if I remember right, I think when we spoke, you mentioned that pop music kind of left the picture for you after high school and then sounds like it's come back in again. So... What, yeah. What has your relationship with pop music looked like over the past, say, I don't know, ten years or so? That's yeah. I mean, it's so interesting. I feel like it really, it really tracks like a personal narrative as well. Um, mm. Yeah. I mean, I feel like there's a way that like getting back into pop music sort of represents like getting back in touch with my own feelings and needs and desires, and I think. Um, you know, I think that a lot of uh, trans people experience um, a lot of alienation from their own feelings and needs and desires because it's kind of what we have to do to survive. Mm. Um, and I think it's it's no coincidence that, you know, sort of things have, those issues have sort of become more or less resolved in my life. Like, honestly, this is the most I've talked about being trans in I don't know, in, in within recent memory. Right. Um, it's, I mean, obviously it's like a, it's a kind of experience that will continue and has impacted my life um, in a seismic kind of way. But, um, you know, I'm sort of, I'm entering this new phase of my life where um, instead of thinking about, you know, feeling safe in my body or fe- feeling safe in the world or, um, you know, the sort of more, mundane aspects of transition um i'm thinking about my career or my relationships or Hmm. you know just trying to unpack uh who i really am and it makes sense that i think this kind of uh opening up period of my life of being like okay like i don't have to I can I can like let go of my defenses, right? And I can open up to what I enjoy. And um, I think that for me, like when I was younger um, and in less of a good place, like that sort of experimental music and and the idea of of progress or doing something new or innovating in, in music was a sort of way. Um, a way of like protecting myself and um, and sort of feeling it's a it's a way of feeling safe, I guess. Right. Um, of being like this is a thing that I can do that will give my life meaning. Hmm. And um, now now I don't need that anymore, and I can feel that I don't actually have to do accomplish anything for my life to have meaning. Right. Like it just does. And uh, and then that sort of frees me up to to just enjoy what I enjoy, and it turns out that I really enjoy. Um, maybe I guess evidently I, I'm learning today. Maybe not the most poppiest of music, <laughs> but at least poppier music. <laughs> yeah, um, I mean, so to to go through that experience and then realize right so music like frank ocean's blonde is something that 
you know, fundamentally speaks to me. And now that Mm -hmm. resonates with me. I mean, has that brought with it then a, a... it's not a period of exploration for you, I, I guess. Once you yes. are like, right, I'm going to get stuck into this stuff, then that, that leaves quite a lot of music open to you, right? Oh, my goodness. <laughs> yes, absolutely. Well, especially, like, listening just as much as creating. Um, mm. I mean, one thing, uh, so, like, it's one sort of side effect of uh, transitioning through my uh, undergrad is that it's taken me a really, really long time to finish it. Right. Um, so... I just, I actually just did my last class, um, finished it in December, um, and what I, I got really interested in taking classes in the music department rather than in the electroacoustics department towards the end of my degree, and um, learning about the conventions, um, it's weird, right, because it's like... we already know the conventions like we feel them every uh-huh. day like we know we know what is recognizable and we know what sounds are happy sounds or what sounds are melancholy sounds or what sounds are all these things right like we that's what a convention is is that we implicitly understand it because of our sort of repeated exposure to it yes um, of a certain association but going into to understand the the sort of why of that, or at least the maybe more the how, was a really really cool experience for me. Um, and yeah, I'm so I'm so grateful that I like opened myself up to that. And like, um, you know, as much as you know, what I'm saying is that I I went to learn classical music theory, um, <laughs> which. When you put it like that, doesn't sound quite as exciting. Um, <laughs> <laughs> it was such a like just that 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 opened up this whole new world of thinking about melodies and thinking about um, and I mean mostly melodies. I find I found counterpoint a lot more interesting than than harmony. Although harmony was cool too. Mm. Um, the the counterpoint classes that I took just really changed everything for me. Um, and just sort of allowed me, you know, just I think to to borrow the um, the sort of visual example that I used from Contacta, where uh, it it goes from like this sort of blurry image or an image to like this three dimensional space that you can walk around and sort of look at from different angles. Like that's what the counterpoint classes did for me mm-hmm. with melodies, and. Um, now it's just like my whole relationship to writing music has just changed so profoundly like it's just i just love sitting down with my keyboard and just trying different melodies out and sort of moving things around and just experimenting with you know even just arpeggios or chord progressions and and melodies together or just and those are things that I just, that's not how I thought about um, about writing music before. Right. And now it's given me this whole other sort of framework to engage with um, my own music writing. And that's um, just been such a gift. Like, it's just so fun. And... Uh, <laughs> And and it's a way. It's much more. It's much more intuitive. It's a much um, more self-connected process of creating. Like, you know, so the grids stuff I wrote sort of at the, towards the, I guess you know, in the midst of this transition experience that I had. So it's sort of like I think it's kind of a bit of both in terms of like being written from my head and maybe being written from my body if there's a Mm. sort of metaphor to be employed there uh there's still a lot of like coming from thoughts and and concepts and well not concepts but coming from coming from thoughts and coming from formal i formal concepts Mm -hmm. um in in that work and um i think now when I write music um, it's much more coming from feelings and coming from uh, yeah just a more embodied experience and it's just so much easier like it just 
I don't, I think I used to be like stressed out about being like, how can I come up with something interesting and like trying to think about it? <laughs> yes. And yeah, and I don't feel I'm like, I'm like, oh yeah, I, we need to write another song for this IP, EP. Like, I'm sure I'll get around to it and I'll just, one day I'll just feel like writing music and I'll sit down and something will come out. And I just believe that now. Right. Uh, yeah. Which is like, yeah, that's never, you know, that's a very, very new feeling for me. So, um, yeah, it's all, it's all sort of tied in, all sort of tied in together. Yeah. Pop music and melodies and self, self-discovery and connection. It's, it's, it's nice. <laughs> <laughs> Living in an idea, an idea from another man's mind. Maybe I'm a fool to settle for a place with some nice views. Maybe I should move, settle down, two kids in a swimming pool. So let's go to your final record now, Sarah. So yeah, give me the name of it and then tell me a bit about why it's important to you as well. Yeah, so we can I'll, um, we can definitely leave off on a more sad note. Mm. Um, thankfully. No, I'm just kidding. Um, so the last record I chose was uh, The Oil Every Pearl's Uninsides by Sophie. And, I mean, I'm sure most people know that she uh, recently passed away. Um, mm. And... That was an experience that had a, a very, or sorry, that was an event that had a very big impact on me. And her music um, has had a huge impact on me. And uh, I would have easily cho- chosen it had she not recently died. But I think that this this event has really um, brought into perspective what it means to have. Um, examples and like people to kind of idolize and uh, people to look up to like I think that's something that I have not felt it's something that I've had uh, I've not felt connected to and honestly had a hard time even really understanding I think for a lot of my life like I remember even when David Bowie died and people were just devastated and and I kind of just I just didn't get it to be honest you know and that has really changed for me. Like, I, I mean, I feel angry uh, mm. um, that she has passed away. Like, I feel like something has been stolen from me. And I think that's a, you know, that, that's obviously a very sad and unfortunate feeling. But I think the, the flip side of it is sort of connecting to this, like, I like I have something to feel angry about or I have something there was something to have that could be taken away right um, and I think maybe I took for granted um, to the extent to which her her existence um, has had had such a big impact on me mm. um, and uh, I don't take it for granted anymore and can you recall how you first came to discover Sophie? Oh, man. Yeah, I mean, I... You know, it's funny. I feel like I probably, like a lot of people, um, had this sort of experience of coming to her work before she was sort of, like, publicly making herself known Mm -hmm. uh, in terms of her, her personal who she is yeah um and so it was sort of like this moment of being like oh of of sort of rolling my eyes at what i thought was a guy using a woman's name and feeling pretty like feeling a a bit smug about it you know and then and then somebody like and then at some point but still really still really really liking her music and being like wow this stuff is really like kind of blowing my mind Mm. and yeah and then sort of somebody being like um actually (laughs) um (laughs) actually she's she's a woman so so um (laughs) yeah so that that is i think that's yeah and then i think 
and then she came out with her her this record, um, the oil of every pearls and insides, and and then. That is really when I mean I guess it's actually sort of around the same time that I got into uh, Blonde, which I know is quite a bit later than it was released. But that's I think this period of time when that record came out was sort of for me uh, the sort of beginning of this sort of like reconnection uh, period of my life. And uh, and so I guess yeah, my experience of her of her record of this record. Um, is very much imbued with that sort of personal experience as well. Two incredible records to like have come into your orbit that time. Wow! Yeah. <laughs> no kidding. Yeah, yeah, it was a cool time. Yeah. yeah. Um, is there a favorite track that you have on this Sophie record? Uh, the uh, the what's this? The second last one. It's the it's the it's the fun one. The really really fun <laughs> one. Immaterial. Uh huh. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, the one that's just basically like a pop anthem. Oh yeah. In a way. It's like a Sophieized pop anthem. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, there's really like there's very few pieces of music that just make me want to rejoice as much as that one does. Um, hmm. Yeah, it just feels like such a. I mean, a, an incredible sort of channeling of of celebratory um, uh, energy and excitement and bliss, like just sort of like this uncomplicated feeling. Like it's interesting because I think, you know, usually so you think of uh, like feelings that are not complicated or like an expression of a feeling that's not complicated in any kind of piece of art as sort of being more base, right? Like, you know, a good character is a complicated character that has uh, that that makes you feel ambivalent or whatever. Um, mm. But in this case, I, I mean, maybe maybe I'll re-listen to the song and I'll have an, I'll I'll change my opinion. But this this song, the feeling of this song, does not feel complicated, and I think that's why I like it so much. It's just like it's almost like a reprieve from the the sort of. Uh, you know the way that like living in a world that is fundamentally complicated um is difficult Mm -hmm. um it's it's like deeply cathartic to have a reprieve from from that reality and just to be like this the song just like makes me feel good and like want to (laughs) dance but it's but it's more than that, you know, like, because there's a lot of songs like that that don't have that same meaning, I guess. And it's it's not through, like, a, a an emotionally complex expression or, or like, um, but I guess it can still be, I don't know, it can be, it doesn't have to necessarily be nuanced to be profound. And I guess right. why that is exactly is, is a difficult question to answer. Yeah. I mean, yeah. one thing that I found interesting about this record, it's really interesting to hear you talk about that track, is the fact, the the way that it's sequenced atmospherically. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I'd be intrigued to get your take on this as someone who you know, knows the record so much better, but feels like a record that pulls hard in lots of different directions. Um, mm-hmm. yeah. So could it be that, you know, the fact that you've got something so sort of radiant and uncomplicated in the context of so many different emotional hues maybe is is that the thing that kind of brings it really hard to the fore you know i think that has to be a part of it and i think that's a great observation like yeah there's definitely tracks on there that are are very uh intense and and sort of extreme almost and in in terms of just the high gloss sort of power of it and then the other sort of like sort of more drone ambient ones that yeah. sort of balance it out. Um, I mean, I think that... I think it's going to be hard to articulate exactly why, but I think some of it has to do with just uh, who she is and, mm. and or was, I should say, and, um, and what that represented, I guess... You know, I think um, she was 34, so of a similar of a similar sort of generation as me. Like I'm 28, so mm-hmm. I think that 
the fact that she was drawing from a lot of you know because I think the 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 syncopation of that song definitely reminds me of like early 2000s um, of pop and sort of like the way that um, pop started to appropriate like techno and and house aesthetics around that time mm -hmm. um, and I think you know, as much as that's like a complicated thing, there's criticisms criticisms to be made there. Like, I really, really love that era of music just because I, you know, that's when I was a kid and that's what I was like listening to on, on uh, much music, the Canadian and MTV, <laughs> um, <laughs> like like Kylie Minogue or something. Uh -huh. So I think there's that. I think that, and and you know, I think she was definitely and still is most most popular with with people my age mm -hmm. as far as i know and you know i think obviously you know to to go back to the uh the point of her importance her personal importance to me and just what her existence represents i think that also uh is a big part of why it feels so special like you know i guess if it's if it's celebratory then to it's like if if you if there if there's nothing about yourself to celebrate then then why celebrate right and so it's not to say that i think that her this song was self-celebratory in a negative sense mm. but i think that there is a way that being like i exist and in this way and like here I am and I'm gonna do something that is so powerfully celebratory mm -hmm. is a is an extremely powerful statement that I think that's probably what it is that's a huge part of it for me like you know just just being like yeah like we're we're here you know mm -hmm. uh, trans women are here and and we're gonna like we're gonna dance like like we've never like like no one could ever you know she's gonna make us dance like no one else could mm. and you know i mean really for me personally it's hard to think of a more powerful statement mm. uh, than that Sarah, that feels like a nice place to wrap up. Thank you so much for talking through these three important records and also your own work as well. This has been fabulous. I've had a great time. Thank you so much. It's been it's been so cool to uh, have these great questions that really get me to think, make me articulate these things. It's, it's satisfying to to be able to to sort of be. I mean, not forced, but to be sort of just to to be compelled to to try and articulate these things is very has been it's been really really nice for me as well. Awesome. And just to remind people as well, if people want to check out your projects, where's the best place for them to to go to do that? So everything is on my website. So um, Sarah-Feldman.com. So S-A-R-A-H-F-E-L-D-M-A-N.com. Um, so you can see um, the the Grids EP and the stuff that I did with Watering. And there's also a link to all the information about Sounds Good channel. Um, or if you want to just check out Sounds Good channel, it's YouTube.com slash Sounds Good channel. Um, and that's where you can see all, all the videos that I make about uh, different different important people in music history and, and other music topics. I've got a video coming out um, uh, tomorrow, so that's February the the 10th. Um, so I'm sure when you hear this, it will be already out mm -hmm. on um, the history of, or not the history, but on different various different approaches to music notation and how different notation expresses different kinds of cultural and musical values and uh, trying to debunk the idea that Western staff notation is somehow what music notation is. 
Awesome. Great. Um, yeah, I implore people to check out the channel. Um, thank you once again, Sarah, and to everyone listening. We'll see you next time. Goodbye.